Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we have officially entered my favorite part of the tennis tour, and that's the summer hardcore swing in the Americas. And there's two words that come to my mind when you think about this swing. Number one, momentum, and number two, pressure. You look at people who do well at the U.S. Open and they always build momentum at these events, whether it's D.C., Toronto, Montreal, Cincinnati. I think the way that these tournaments are placed on the calendar being back-to-back with high-level 500-level events and 1,000-level events, I mean, you don't even have to win the events. But having a set of good wins at these level events really positions you to play well at the Open. If you look at the people who have won U.S. Open, they have always built a lot of momentum for themselves in this swing. We saw Coco Golf win DC. Could that be the start of what we as American tennis players are hoping for? And that is an eventual Grand Slam title out of Coco. And my God, would it be great to have it happen at what I consider to be the Super Bowl of our slam, the U.S. Open. But I also think about the pressure. I think about a city like D.C. that has eight to ten pros on tour, male and female. And it's always interesting to see, A, how they love playing in front of the home crowd, but B, to see who holds up to the pressure of playing in front of the home crowd. And then you take a trip to Montreal and Toronto, and you think about Andrescu, Bouchard, Ronish, Fernandez. You think about all these players, and it's always interesting to see who holds up to the pressure of playing at really the only the, the biggest tournament in this in the, on the calendar happens to be in Canada, right? And that is their their one time to shine. Where you look at Americans, you know, you got Indian Wells, you got Miami, you got US Open, you got Cincy. We've got multiple opportunities to sort of have a good run with Canadians. This is their one shot. So it's always interesting to see who emerges from the pressure. If I had to say who was who was building the most momentum for themselves right now. I would have to say it's Atlanta Svitolina. The way she's come back, even in her losses, the quality of her losses, a three-set loss to Pagula, who's had a great two-year run on tour. Uh, and then Chris Eubanks. Chris Eubanks has been playing lights-out tennis, has built positive momentum for himself uh, before Wimbledon, during Wimbledon, a couple good wins in Atlanta, a good win in D.C., uh, and a tough three-set loss to Monfils. So those are the two players that I would say are building the most momentum for themselves entering the swing. Ironically, our guest today is Vashik Pospisil, a Canadian known for his doubles, um, but mostly known for his leadership. Very vocal about uh, unionizing the tour for tennis players, fighting for equal pay, fighting for more share of the pay versus the promoters in the events. and trying to sort of elevate the players' earnings to be closer to what players of other sports earn. Let's take a listen to hear what Vasek had to say. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with a leader on tour, a very vocal player with a high tennis IQ and just a high IQ for life and how to grow the sport. Uh, a favorite in the locker room and uh, a Canadian superstar who, you know, honestly was leading the charge years ago when Canada was starting to bubble up. You kept hearing Vashik, Vashik, Vashik and Milos and then Dennis, right? And then, and, you know, um, and Drescu, but, you know, you were at the start of that. So Vashik, uh, Pospisil, welcome to the show, brother. Thank, thanks for having me. If half those things are true, then, uh, then <laughs> you know, I'm pretty good spot. <laughs> But I appreciate it. Well, you know, being a coach, you know, we sit there on our phone 
for a long time while y'all get massages and y'all are in the locker room just talking shit. So we hear a lot of incidental conversations. So everything that I said is true. You are a favorite <laughs> in the locker room and well-respected. You know, it's like sitting on my phone on WhatsApp one day and hear people, oh man, I love that dude, Bajik. He's so damn smart. You know, <laughs> that's what the players say about you. <laughs> well, that's good. It's good to know. <laughs> so you yeah. definitely got a career in management and in, in tennis management after this, right? Because you, everyone wants a piece of your brain. So, so well, let me yeah. ask you this. Your story is so interesting to me because of just how you merely, you know, came to Canada. So I, I spent a lot of time in Canada, uh, in Toronto, training, et cetera. And what amazed me about Toronto is how everybody there is not from there. Yeah. Right? It's just, it's like amazing that I think of 10 people, maybe you meet one that's actually from Canada, right? And didn't migrate there. So tell me about how you landed there. Uh, tell me about, you know, the roots from the Czech Republic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, Canada is a country of immigrants, some, you know, more recent um, and some, you know, a couple of generations. But uh, I, I was actually born in Canada. So I'm one of the I'm one of the ones my, I came to Canada as, as anyone that I was born there with, you know, through my, my mom's womb. But <laughs> but uh, but my parents actually. Yeah, my parents escaped the communist regime in Czech Republic uh, back in 88 with uh, my two older brothers. They spend a year in Austria working under the table. I mean, just trying to like survive, I guess, or just, you know, save up enough money to come to Canada. And, and, um, cause my, my uncle escaped, uh, a couple of years prior and he was, he was already, already in, in a small town in Vernon, which is where I ended up growing up and where I was born. And so my parents finally, you know, they, they, uh, saved up enough to, to, to come to Canada. And then I was born a year later. Uh, and then, uh, yeah. And then, then there's a whole, you know, the whole tennis journey began pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, ever since I can remember, right. As soon as I started walking, I pretty much had a, a tennis racket and my dad was, uh, a huge, you know, I guess, extremely passionate about the sport. Um, he, you know, was, was a more of a recreational player, I guess, when, you know, in Czech Republic just played for fun. And, but when he came to Canada, he just became, uh, incredibly passionate about it and was, you know, watching tennis on TV, reading magazines on how to coach, uh, reading about just became, you know, a tennis nut and uh, started coaching my brothers and, and wanted one of, one of his kids to be a professional player. So I, I guess that's kind of, just, you know, how it started. And um, yeah, here I am, I guess, 27 years later from when I first started playing. Now talk about, you know, escaping Czech, because I've, I've heard stories of like your dad just being a straight up G, just driving through the border. Like, you know, just driving yeah. through border protection and control. Like, not just like, oh, he escaped. He just gangstered his way through the border. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish my dad was here to, to tell you this story because it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. Um, I, I've only ever heard it from his mouth a couple times, which is, which is really surprising when you think about it. But, but yeah, he, he basically, I mean, they didn't tell their family or anything. They couldn't, right? So they, they had to be extremely secretive about that. And and um, yeah, I just packed up the car with with my two brothers in the back seat, my mom in the front, and uh, just went to the border. And and I mean, the way he the way he kind of explained it was, you know, what he didn't really even have a plan. He just kind of rolled up to the border. He was in one of the lanes um, for you know, I guess the average people who are trying to cross cross. And then there was like a special lane uh, for special passports, um, which had a gap in it and he just said okay I'm just gonna go right through it so he, he basically just went into that lane and he put up the passports and covered the the logo because I guess they had like a special sticker or logo or something on the on the front of the passport and didn't make eye contact with the with the border patrol agent so he just put up the passports kept looking forward and the guy was yelling at him to stop and he just kind of drove through and at that point you know they have machine gun towers and all that. And back then they would shoot, they would shoot cars, right. That would, that would do that. And, and, uh, and I guess just, you know, <laughs> I guess they, they didn't know who, who my dad was. And they're, they, I guess they don't want to shoot, shoot someone that, you know, potentially could be a super important ambassador or something. You never know. Right. I mean, he has passports. <laughs> so I guess they just kind of let him through and he was looking in the rear mirror and, and uh, they didn't come after him. And that was, that was, that was kind of it. But, there's a lot more to this story. I mean, this is that, you know, there's, um, this, that's for like a, a two hour conversation with my dad. <laughs> give you the, the 30 second overview summary. Yeah. 
So you talk about, um, you know, his role in your tennis, right? Your dad had this dream, amateur tennis player, nothing special, but like I put him in the category of the Richard Williams, you know what I mean? The other, the other parents who just sort of read books, watched videos and figured it out. And, you know, when I was a kid, one of the things I used to dread was the hour drive home after a bad practice or oh, after yeah. a bad match, right? Uh, yeah. And so it was like, so I know your dad's famous for like long drives, right? Driving. All these, so tell me about the time in the car. Yeah. Post practice, post tournament with your father. Yeah, he was definitely, he was pretty fiery, pretty intense. I mean, you know, he, uh, he toned down a lot kind of as he got older, but he's the most amazing person, like most, biggest heart ever. Um, and uh, yeah, we had, for sure, it's not easy when your dad is your coach. And obviously my dad is super passionate. And like you said, there are, you know, parallels for sure to the, to the Richard Williams story. I mean, I saw, I actually saw King Richard, uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago. I was really late to the party, but what an unbelievable movie. Uh, and story but yeah I was just thinking back to like my dad doing double shifts and and uh you know working overnights and whenever he was home we'd be on the court and then um and playing on you know these cracked high school public courts obviously in, in a much safer environment <laughs> but uh but um yeah I mean it was it was a lot of hard work and uh a lot of passion went to it right for the same reason so just kind of um a lot of energy and then if you're not playing well, I mean, you know, right. So I think my dad was, uh, if we, I think, you know, if I didn't have a good attitude or if I, or if I just kind of was like not dialed or something, um, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't necessarily be too happy about that. So, so I, I definitely dreaded the, the, the car rides back, um, <laughs> after like a bad practice or a bad match. I mean, for sure. I think everyone, you know, with, with dedicated parents that kind of, really want their kids to succeed and, and kind of project that passion. It's, you know, it's, it's not anything. I think that's a large reason, you know, the main reason as to why I, I became successful was, was how much energy uh, and, and, you know, commitment my, my dad and my and sacrifice that my, my family made, <clears throat> but, you know, specifically my dad, how much he put into, you know, developing me and, 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 and my brothers and wanting me to be a uh, success. And um, so, you know, as, as tough as it was at times, I mean, it was, I, I'm so grateful that, uh, that, you know, that things were tough. I mean, I worked super hard and, and, um, you know, we, we, we went through a lot together, but we have, we have a bond, uh, very long answer. Sorry, but we've had, we have a bond now that, that obviously, uh, is super special because we, our relationship is amazing. And, um, you know, he, he's a very smart guy and he, he, uh, yeah, he just, you know, we, we did the best of what we had and, and I think he couldn't have done anything better and I couldn't have asked for, for anything more. Yeah, you look at the story of most pro tennis players and there's always a parent that pushes. You know what I mean? Like if, if I, this is my theory, right? Being a coach, right? Having an academy. If you leave it up to the kids, they'll sit at the home, they'll sit at the crib and like watch TV, play video games, play with toys, that kind of thing. So it does take, a mildly insane parent to be yeah. the driving force and to keep coaches honest, right? Because, you know, even totally. as a coach, right? If you get a laid back parent that's not watching, you kind of like passing the time, milking the hour. But if you have a parent that like, no, I need some, I need some results out of this shit, then it's like, oh, now you bring your A game, right? So without that force, you don't make a pro tennis player, period, point blank. Exactly. I mean, <clears throat> you, I, uh, yeah. It, and it's hard for people that haven't gone through this process, uh, like you and I are just within in Tesla to understand this because it's like, oh, okay, well, the other sports, you can start later and this, or you, you know, kids, oh, I'll let my kid decide what he wants to do. Like, yeah, that's great. I mean, um, that's one way to do it, but I mean, and it might be, you know, there's no one path for everyone. And you hear that a lot, like people, you know, that's, that's, but, but I will say that, you know, when you're, when you're a kid, when you're a kid, I mean, you don't know what you really, you don't like, it's, you need some kind of direction. Like you said, I mean, if you're just like, okay, I'm going to do what I want. Like, okay, I'll go play soccer for a bit. I'll go play hockey. I'll go play video games with my friends and okay, I'll get my homework done. But, but really like the more time you spend at a young age on your craft and it's even more so important in tennis because you need to learn the technique and the skill and the, and like the, the hand-eye coordination, the ball control and just general, 
you know, perception on, on, on the court and reading the game. And um, so the more time you spend there. And so, so again, because there's so many variables and so many different aspects of that sport, I think it's so critical to spend a lot of, you know, from a young age, more so than maybe some other sports. Right. So, but like you said, I, I, I'm a very strong believer that, uh, you know, if you don't have that, that one, at least that one person uh, from a young age, that's, that's kind of like, you know, keeping you on track or kind of pushing you in a, in a good way, of course, then it, then, um, you know, it's not impossible, obviously, but uh, I think the odds of succeeding are, you know, quite diminished at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so we look at your career, right? You've got to top four in the world in dubs, top 25 in singles. Uh, you've obviously played with some great doubles players, right? And had a lot of double success. All your partners are great. So I'm not trying to, you know, <laughs> make you choose, right? But let's give me, give me your top three doubles partners. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I look at your list of partners. I look, whenever I mention doubles, I think of Brian Brothers, I think of Johnny Mack, I think of Jack Sock, right? So when I look at your list of partners, yeah. obviously Jack stands out. Like, okay, that dude can, can play with anybody, right? Yeah. Uh, and win. But give me yeah. your top three doubles partners. I think, <clears throat> I think uh, Jack, um, Mahout and uh, Nestor were the three best that um, I've played with. I'm trying to think, um, I think Daniel Nestor, when he was at his prime, was is uh, even just very underrated. Um, I don't even. I mean, no, no, no. I don't, this might not sound great, but you know, he didn't necessarily, in my view, have partners that. I mean, you know, I, I feel like he was, when he was playing well, I mean, this guy was serving big, returning unbelievable at the net. He was, I mean, I don't know who had better hands um, for me. And, and it might sound biased because he's, he's a countryman, but I've played against all these guys, right? I mean, I've played against, or, or at least of my era. Now, if we're talking about the Johnny Max, like, you know, now that's a whole other discussion, but if I just concentrate on what my experiences for me, he was, he was probably, um, I would say the best. Um, and then, and then Jack, uh, extremely explosive also, I mean, up there, just different, different qualities. Um, and then, I mean, I would say, yeah, it's tough. Honestly, like I'll, I'll be honest, it's tough to separate those guys. Um, they're all, they're all very different. They all have very different skills. Um, and I think they can all win with, with a lot of different guys, you know, and, and they've, uh, I mean, um, yeah. So, so those, those are three that I would say, um, that I've experienced playing with or against uh, are the three, the three best, but you know, there's a lot of singles guys that aren't playing, that aren't playing, that aren't focused on doubles. I mean, it'd be interesting. You know, I think if, if, you know, if a guy like Federer was focused on doubles, I mean, uh, he'd be the best ever, obviously. I mean, I, I can't, you know, so we can even forget about the three that I just spoke about, right. If you suddenly have, if you suddenly have these guys that are in a dollar that, you know, start playing more doubles or start actually really wanting to do well in doubles. Like it, it's right. It changes just that cycle, even just psychologically, how much that changes your performance on the doubles court. If it's suddenly a priority uh, versus, or like something you really, really want to do well versus just, okay, you're there to play. And, and it, it's, it's like, it's night and day. Right. So, so it, I think it'd be very interesting to see, um, you know, what some of these, what some of these top singles players would, would be like if they focused on the double score. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, because I've, I've coached a couple top singles players, like, and our challenge with doubles is, you know, sometimes the scheduling just gets, you know what I'm saying? You know, it gets crazy, yeah. right? Where you start making it deeper into the tournament, you got to start playing two matches in the same day. Right. Or maybe you get lucky yep. and you play doubles on your off day and maybe we could just not practice on the off day and use dubs as a practice. We yeah. mentioned like, I mean, how much better the game would be with Fed, Novak, Isner, even Isner playing more dub, yeah. right? Yeah. Playing more dub, Tissy Pass playing more dub. What do you think? And because you're very vocal on the tour from an organization and what we can do better standpoint, right? So what do you think we could do to get it where and, you know, Fed is almost, you know, he's on his way out, right? And, you know, Novak will probably won't change his habits at this point. But what could we do to let the next wave of great singles players also play dubs? So how can we blend it better? 
Oh man, that's a tough. Uh, that's a, that's a tough one because I mean the big the big issue there. I mean, okay, there's two issues, right? I mean, two major issues with that, I guess. Um, why top singles players don't play doubles, and the first and most obvious one is that, like you said, it doesn't. It takes energy, and you you want to focus. I mean, if your priority is singles and you want to, you know, um, then just playing doubles and playing it consistently or constant or putting a certain amount of mental energy into it which like i said you kind of need if you want to play well it's like that little switch right, right? like you can spend time right. on the court and that might tire you out a little bit physically but but if you actually want to win you need to have that mental switch which most singles guys you know they, they don't want to even do because they're so concentrated on the singles uh, so just scheduling is is the big one. I mean, it's, it's also the reason why I haven't played really, you know, doubles the last five years. I mean, since I, I dropped a bit in the singles ranking, um, I, I was like, okay, I'm, I don't really want to play doubles until I'm back top 50 singles. And, and which is, which is, you know, also ironic because then I'm in top 50 singles. So why would I want to spend energy doubles? But, it, but again, because like, okay, yeah. playing qualities and there, there's a lot of, like a lot of different things. Right. And so, um, I would say, yeah, that's, that's just one. I don't know how will be, how that would be something that could get fixed because people are always going to want to conserve their energy for, for the, for the event that they're focused on. Um, and then the second is, you know, the prize money, right? Uh, you know, if you suddenly have the same prize money doubles that you do in singles, which, you know, I, I, I don't see happening anytime soon, but if that were to happen, I mean, you'd have more singles guys playing doubles because, uh, suddenly they're like, oh, if I win a doubles match or, you know, versus my singles match, I'm making the same amount of money or let's say 50%, let's say the person, Half say, that, right. right. So, I mean, that would change it for sure. But, but I mean, how are we going to, how would that ever happen? Like you gotta, you gotta, doubles has to be as successful in singles or make a, like some kind of case study for that to even ever start being comparable. Right. So, um, yeah, it's a tough well, one. We'd have, to, we'd, one we'd have to grow the game. Right. So you and I talk well, about exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, we'd have to, how do we grow the pot intense, right? Right. The, the rising tide raises all boats. Right. So, yeah. you know, if we grow the game, right, then coaches make more money, trainers make more money, players make more money, events make more money, you know, everything makes more. And then perhaps doubles could. So what do you think? Like, that's like a good segue into yeah. what do you think we have to do <laughs> to grow the game? Because it all, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a job. We're playing for money period, point blank, right? And, yeah. you know, you brought up the money in dubs. We need to bring up the money in tennis generally, right? What do you think we can do to grow or we can compete with some of these, you know, NBA contracts now to get $30 million a year guarantee, you know what I'm saying, contract? How do yeah. we get there? Yeah. Okay, so- Because if you think about it, yeah. more people play dubs, like adults, like people who watch tennis, Yeah, yeah more of true. them play doubles than singles. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's true. Um, Okay, so if if we if I just focus on you know growing the game, let's let's you know if I separate doubles and singles now and just talk about tennis as a whole. Obviously, you know what what each individual country does with the funds that they have that are you know meant to go towards growing the game at the grassroots level or however it is. If it's Tennis Canada from the Masters, if it's the USTA, and um, if it's LTA, and you can you know that's okay. We could dive into what they can do and. You know, there's no reason to do that. First of all, I don't even really know what they're what how what they're doing differently. And I mean, I would I would have to be the you know uh, spend a couple months reading nonstop about what all these different countries are doing to help grow their sport locally and nationally. But if I look at it more from a macro like perspective in terms of you know in terms of something that I that I believe obviously you know is what I think would be kind of like a catalyst or that could create a platform. And this might, you know, sound like I'm beating a dead horse here, but it's, but it's, it's, I, I, I honestly, and I honestly believe it's a player association and, and I'll, and hear me out and why I think that's so critical is because as long as the players are not independent and they're basically uh, in this um kind of construct that is currently our one tour that we have which is you know we have one tour it's the ATP tour and that's totally that's okay but problem is what that does is it, it shuts it creates a monopoly which is you know tennis is very very much monopolized and and anytime you have a monopoly that's wonderful for for the you know the controlling party because they they're more or less 
doing what, okay. what they want and, and they, but what that, what that, the problem that that creates is that you don't have an open market, right? You can't, so suddenly in this case, you know, tennis is one of the most <clears throat> underperforming sports in the world. <clears throat> I think it's third most watched globally. Um, unbelievable potential and it's the worst performing of all the major sports like um and why is that well now if we go back to this you know um well one of the things there's a lot of reasons okay but one of my theories is that <laughs> one of my theories is that while it's stays monopolized basically the, the the growth and the direction of the sport is is completely contingent on the performance of one organization right so if that organization is you know doesn't hire the good people is subpar whatever you know it has an incredible product so it still looks amazing because tennis is is awesome and we've had Federer and we've had Nadal and Djokovic we've had an unbelievable era how is it not doing better than it's been doing well maybe it's it's because of this of this structure right why are still only top 100 players able to make you know uh, a good living and and so it's my belief that if we're actually able to become independent as players which in and itself having a, a, a player voice or a, an, an association or organization that represents like solely the players. I mean, that, that needs to be there anyway. I mean, all the sports have it. That's like a basic, almost like a democratic like principle. You need to have, you know, some say, especially in a, in a market where you bring so much value as a player group. So yeah, to go back. So now if you, if you open the market, suddenly, you know, it, it puts, it puts pressure on, on, on these, on these events. And if they're under, or these events, these tours, if they're underperforming, then something else can come up and suddenly, oh, suddenly here's a plan and not a hundred players are going to make it, but 300 players are going to make a living. And now we have a system <clears throat> where, where, you know, um, 300 men, 300 women will, will be able to live off of this sport and not the way it is currently. Right. And so I think it's not, it wouldn't be the goal of the player association to be that other option it would be the goal to create this you know to become an independent create the open market and allow for competition to evolve naturally and then you know and if it remains the way it might remain the same tour the way it is now but at least they'll be forced to step up and and perform the one i mean the one one uh, one thing i would compare it to is like you know airlines i mean air canada is the only airline in Canada. They they have a monopoly basically, and 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 even in the U.S. you have American, you have Delta, you have United, uh, South. Right. I mean, you have, and yeah. I mean, if I fly from L.A. to New York, if I'm flying around the U.S., it's like a it's like a quarter of the prices it is in the state in Canada. Like I can't fly anywhere in Canada for less right now. I mean, the flight prices have gone up in general worldwide, but but um, but it's, you know, it's, it's like four times the price probably. Right. So, and why is that? Well, Air Canada have a monopoly and they're the only ones that have the flights flying from Montreal to Vancouver and Vancouver to Winnipeg or right. So it's a little bit of similar, uh, a little bit of a parallel there, but you know, there's a, a long answer, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty passionate that I, I really do believe that, that, that will, apart from just servicing the players and, and making it, one organization's top priority to make sure that that players are, are taken care of and that and that they're you know trying to grow the, these services to as many players as possible apart from that i mean i just think it'll it will just help the sport from a, at, a, at a higher level as well so let's talk about a tangent from that is you've seen like the big three right we keep mentioning rafa uh, nadal fed and obviously they're in a tight race to be the greatest ever the most grand slams ever and I think that like this January, you know, decision not to let Novak play and then the French being the next slam after that gives Rafa, right, obviously a two slam advantage um, and then even potentially U.S. Open, right? A three slam advantage, right? So, or another two slam, that Novak played and won Wimby. Um, is that where you think sort of the competition would also come into or maybe some um, more voices Right to help manage those situations because we just saw that you know Montreal is not letting Novak play, which we mm -hmm. got we got Rafa who's hurt, you Fed who's not playing, and you got no Novak now, right? That hurts. A it hurts tennis. A it hurts the players, and B it hurts the the individual event. Yeah. yeah. Right. What do you think about that whole how that whole thing unfolded with the COVID and entry and all that kind of stuff? 
Well, I think that, well, first of all, I think what happened, you know, in Australia and even now in, in New York, uh, for example, and Novak not being able to play, that, that's, you know, I, I feel like that's, it's difficult to, to see um, a path as to how, how a player association can really affect a government um, guideline. So, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. we could, for example, you know, you'd advocate for the player and, and whatever, right? And, and, but ultimately, there's very little you can do. It's, you know, it will come down to how the governments decide they want to, to make the rules. And so I don't really, you know, I, I find it unrealistic to think that what happened in Australia wouldn't have happened if there was a player association. However, you know, their player association would then be able to, you know, um, help in other ways, I'm sure, um, the, the individual players or whatever. But, but I will say that what happened in Wimbledon, for example, um, you know, them uh, banning the Russian players and kind of the, the way that that whole exchange uh, occurred between the ATP and Wimbledon um, and how, you know, they put these um, kind of the sanctions or, or, you know, then they removed the points as a way to say, okay, you guys Wimbledon made a decision without consulting ATP. So now we're going to take away the points. And then, then everyone is waiting to go, is Wimbledon going to drop prize money because of this? And so, so there was this, there was a situation where, you know, I'm not going to get into what was the right or wrong, um, you know, or what my opinion is on what should have happened, not at all, but, but, but basically what, what did happen that we can speak about that I want to speak about is that, is that you had this little, little battle between, you know, two organizations or, you know, let's say Wimbledon and the ATP and the collateral damage was the players and they were just, they were making these decisions and there's no real, like, they weren't really consulting with the players at all. Nobody knew, like, honestly, like, they didn't consult. I spoke to so many of the top guys, like, yeah, you had a player council, but player council, you know, it's, and how effective they are that, you know, in, in, in the uh, construct of the ATP is a whole other, a whole other discussion. But um, so you basically had these two Goliaths kind of talking to each other, making these things players, you know, suddenly were the ones that were getting hurt. And there was no, there was no way to have this back and forth and, and discussion which would be the case if we had a player association, for example. So there I would like, you know, and maybe the, the outcome would have been the same. I don't know. Um, but, but at least, you know, there would have been, there would have been very good representation from all the parties and, and some kind of agreement or some decisions can be made with everyone's input versus just, you know, the, the tournament and the eight and the ATP as a, an organization. Right. So that represents, you know, that is uh you know, largely a tournament organization at this point, unfortunately. So we talk about Wimbledon and the decision not to let Russian, better Russian players play. I want to take you back to 2015 because top 25 in the world, right? Quarters of Wimbledon in 2015, quarters of any slam is hard, period, <laughs> right? And I think in tennis, unfortunately, if you don't win a slam, they kind of forget. Like, I don't think anybody can name the other seven players who were in the quarters. You know what I mean? Yeah. But in our sport, that is hard to do to make second wave slam. So I want, but a lot has to go right. And I want to take you back to 2015 mm -hmm. because, you know, when you when you think about all the things that can go wrong at a slam, right? Or, yeah. Right. And like, you know, you you've also had some injuries. What went right in 2015 that allowed that run to happen? Yeah. Well, a couple things. <clears throat> a couple things for sure. One, I, I definitely got lucky. So uh, in the very first round, in the first round, I was playing against Vincent Milo, uh, French lefty uh, that I know quite well. He's a great guy. He's, he's uh, working for Tennis Canada now. Actually, he's a, he's a Frenchman. And I was down two sets to one. And I, he'll hate to hear this, but I was down two sets to one and four two, a break on grass. And I was kind of struggling a bit, like physically. It was pretty hot that day. I think I drank like nine liters of water which is whatever how many two gallons or something but or a little more than that even um and uh yeah I was I was down two sets to one in a break and I came back and I, I won the I won the the fourth in a breaker and then I won the fifth and and then you know went on just went on a run and and I I also you know third round I was meant to, to uh play Nadal I think in the third round was it third round or no fourth round I was supposed to be Nadal but he lost to Dustin Brown that year so uh that opened up that little section so it was better I played 
Victor Troitsky in the fourth round, who is a great player on grass, and he made finals at Queens, I think, the week before. So he was in hot form and had good wins. And but you know, it was better to play Victor and and um than than Nadal for sure in the fourth round, especially as you're getting later into into the draw in Wimbledon. Um <clears throat> which I think he'll agree with. I don't think he'll be mad at me for saying that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so that was, that, those were, you know, a few things that, that opened up there. And the other thing was the fact that I was actually healthy all the way through, um, you, you know, because I played some five setters. Uh, I played a five setter. Yeah. First round, I played a five setter against uh, James Ward in the second round, I believe. Oh, yeah. um, and also I was down to to one there. And uh but physically, I held up really well, which which I which is great because I mean that would kind of allow that, that run to happen, right? Because usually, um, you know, if it, so the weather held up. Um, it's like you said, you know, there are a lot of things have to align, and and uh, they did that week, right? So uh, that was great. But kind of like if I compare it to, you know, when I played the U.S. Open, for example, and I made the fourth round <clears throat> a couple of years ago. You know, by the time I was in the fourth round, I was my my body was was destroyed. Um, I played a, again, a couple five setters, but I like a pulled muscle. And, um, so then, you know, in the fourth round, it's like, okay, like, which, which always kind of impresses me that, that some of these guys are just, you know, I do my fitness, man. I work really hard. I got to tell you <laughs> my body type, uh, I guess just takes a little bit more impact when, when you're, you know, spending a lot of time on the court. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, man, it, it, that I always think about the things that could have gone and, and really, you like a lot of players say you got to have a match where you got a little bit of luck. Yeah, I mean, I could think back coaching, right? You know what I mean? Where we couple matches, twenty seventeen U.S. Open. I can remember a lucky moment, Sevastova match point. Literally, like had a forehand. She hit cross court, and I say floated the thing like a millimeter past the baseline. Like done. Yeah. We were like going home. It was over. Yeah. You know what I mean? I can remember like twenty eighteen. First or second round, second round of the French Open was long after the finals. Georgie, two match points. And yeah. Donald Dell stands up in the middle of one of the match points. Before, before like, the point was over. Like, on the no ad sideline, we're sitting courtside. Donald Dell stands up like, yes, in the middle of Georgie's swing. And, like, totally interrupts the point. That was one match point save, right? And oh. Take that, something like that. And look, I'm sitting there like, wow, he ain't with us. Don't call That's interference. Crazy. Like, he's a fan, right? You know what I'm saying? So I can think about like the lucky moments. You know what I mean? If you yeah. win five, yeah. six matches at the slam, you got to have one where you like, damn, I stole totally. that one. <clears throat> totally. But I, I guess it evens out, right? Because that's the thing is like, is tennis is, it, there's so much such like small margins right you just feel like there's so many matches that are won or lost on like these you know a couple shots like you said you miss you you know you hit a serve in by like a millimeter or this or whatever right and I guess that just happens so often throughout the year that there's also all these times where where maybe you know things went against you and and you don't remember that because nothing became of it right but like maybe that week if that ball that you hit on that you were a great point in the third <clears throat> and you missed it by a millimeter if that went in maybe that was the run you would have made the final so I feel like it right so <laughs> you always like focus on because it, it always just becomes that much more kind of obvious right when you have these big runs and then and then anytime you do like like tennis is so like you said so exciting and so competitive and and things can change on one or two points that it, it does feel like you have so many of these like uh these moments where where you know it it kind of makes or breaks your 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 event but it's but it's funny like in aggregate i feel like it probably evens out a bit too but but uh <laughs> but, but <you're> right. <laughs> so, so you mentioned you mentioned nicholas mahout in this in, in this yeah. interview you also talk about wimbledon right and you think yeah. about like where you where you fall in the draw a lot obviously you play novak rafa fed you're gonna be on center court right but you know you also look at the schedule night before and you're wondering am i gonna be on court two, three, 14, 11, right? You know, depending on who you play. So which court do you prefer of those? That's, I thought about it when you said who? Court three or court 18? Court three or court 18. Which one's court three? Which one's court? court three is a small center. It's a small stadium. Small, uh, below the player's lounge. <clears throat> okay. Oh, yeah, All that's right. a great court. Or court 18 okay. is the one uh, Mahout, that Mahout Mahout played on. Isner. Yeah. Court three or court I, 18. I prefer court 18 because it's more intimate. 
and I feel like it's a little bit more closed off. If I'm if I'm thinking of the same court, I yeah, I, yeah. I like to play on bigger courts in general um, because I just I like when there's more people. Um, and it just it's it just kind of I don't know. I, I feel like I play better that I I just and and players want you want to play in front of people. I think in general as 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 an athlete, not everybody maybe, but but. I would be surprised if it wasn't the majority, but of those two courts, I would say, I would say the Isner Mahu court, just cause it, it, it had that, it has that like backdrop with, with those, uh, the, the fan. Yeah. With the Ivy. Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. It feels like a smaller court. So you feel like you can serve well. And then, but there's also quite a few people. So it, 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 it has a good atmosphere. I I've played on that court before. And I think I would say it's probably one of my favorite courts of, of, of Wimbledon actually. So I think they discontinued it. No, this year like last nah. year oh that, it was it was used this year i think oh is it okay never mind. yeah, yeah never, i don't know what i'm talking about so, so let me ask you this then so when the draw comes out yeah right because who's the one player regardless of ranking right they could be having a bad year they could just be coming back whatever ranking is one player that you like please don't let me play this place Oh, um, <clears throat> and don't and not the big three, not like yeah, I won't say the big three. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Somebody in the middle was like, oh, this dude um, has my number." You know what? I was just talking about this last night. I, I want to make sure this is this is the one that that I wouldn't want to play. I just gotta I just gotta think if there's another. But first name that comes to mind and, and is uh, Monfils. Uh, he's got my number. <laughs> he's got my number. <laughs> He wears me down, man. He wears me down. It's it's tough to it's tough to blow through him, and he like, and uh, he just keeps making me play extra ball, extra ball, um, and and I just he wears me down. So I, I he's he, I think I'm 0 four against Guile. I don't want I don't want to play that guy anymore. I love him though. He's a good guy, but I just don't want to play against him. <laughs> he he's one of those guys too, where it's like you know, depending on how he's feeling, he could be 40 in the world. He could yeah. be 14 in the world. And you're yeah. like, come on, bro, please be seated. Please be seated. Yeah. Like, please, yeah. please, like, do yeah. what you're supposed to do so you can be seated. So, like, because yeah. I think the seeds hate that, too. Like, if I'm, like, a, a top 10 seed, I don't want to play Gale in the first or second round either. So, I'm always like, bro, do what you're supposed to do. Be, yeah. be top 25. So, so, so totally. I see you to the third round. You know what I mean? Totally. To my, to my defense, <laughs> every time I've played him, the four times I've played, he's always in form at that time, I remember. Um, so there's a little bit of, you know, it makes me feel a little better. Uh, but, but I did play him a couple of times where I was in form as well. And, uh, so, but, you know, maybe if I play him on a day where he's just, you know, like not feeling it and not, doesn't want to be there, but you know, then, 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 then maybe my chances will be, will be better, but we've had a couple. Yeah. We've, uh, yeah, he's a tough one for me, man. He's a tough one. So you mentioned not want to be there. Tell me a, a stop on tour. It could be when you were first starting out, it could be 15 to 25, whatever. Tell me a stop on tour where you would never have to go back. Oh, okay. Um, surprisingly, uh, surprisingly, there was one very recently. Because you'd think that, like, yeah, you know, maybe back in the futures days or, um, you know, there'd be a couple shady places that, that are gone, but, but there's actually one very recently and I don't want to call them out because I don't want to be that guy, but, uh, it was actually a challenger that I played. Um, and it was, I, and I was just like, I'm, I can never come back to this, to this event. Um, but I'm going to try to give you something a little, I can, I'm going to try to give you something that was long, long ago so that I can actually bring up. So I can actually say what the name of the place <laughs> And without, without hurting any like, feelings or something, but um, I played a tough one. Oh, okay. Well, it's just a memory. I get. I don't know. I played one in. Um, I can't remember if, if that one was El Salvador, if that was uh, Guatemala. I think it was Guatemala. I can't remember now. But <clears throat> but it was it was a futures event. I guess twelve years ago, thirteen years ago. I'm thirty two, so I'm I'm getting kind of old for, but um. And there was a, there was like a revolution or something going on uh, during, so this is more about the events that were happening at the time, more so than the yeah. place itself, although it wasn't, it wasn't luxury any either. So, <laughs> but I was right. used to that. My dad and I, we went to, you know, all these, you know, we, all the, 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 the crazy future tour events. And so, you know, for, for me that I can't even 
point one out that would have been worse than you know maybe a, a handful of others but but this one <laughs> there was like a revolution going on or something like i think the 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 elections were cheated and and there was like a big fraud and and so there was like an uprising and there were like there were like grenades like like literally they're like there's gonna be protests at 5 p.m everyone has to leave latest at 3 30 so they literally like stopped the matches in the middle of the in the middle of the day and and we had to go back to the to the hotel and i remember thinking like oh this is kind of you know this is kind of shady this is a little this is uh you know <laughs> and then we took and then my dad and i took a bus because it was a lot it was cheaper than flying we took a bus from there through honduras to uh, el salvador i think it was like a 20 dollar bus ride and uh the bus was incredible we had like these huge seats and but but that was very that was very sketchy like we should not have done that um looking back but we saved some money that was good we and we survived but but there was like some there was some there was something that had happened like two weeks before with a group of tourists in the same like these buses and i think yeah story not worth repeating but very dangerous um, um so that was just another fun experience i have 30 of these stories yeah. Now, give me favorite stop on tour that's not a grand slam. Favorite stop on tour that's not a grand slam. Um, oh, I need Wells. Uh, everyone's going to say that. Everyone's, everyone's going to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So and not easy. only because of the event. I mean, the event is amazing, but just where you are, you know, the location, like you just, it feels so, yeah, calm. And also, it's very close. And there's a lot of Canadians. There, there are a lot of Canadians there too. So, I always feel like when I'm playing there, I'm I'm like kind of half playing at home. Um, so yeah, I would say Indian Wells, but if I could think of one that's a little less uh, cliche or like, or whatever, like everyone will say that, uh, I would say um, another sneaky one. Can't think of it right now. Um, I'll have to get back to you on that. I love coming here to Canada, obviously, playing at my home, oh, yeah. home country, yeah. And the Vancouver Challenger yeah. was beautiful um it, you know in terms of like a lower level event um if i give a shout out to the challengers uh challenger tour i think the vancouver challengers has one of the best settings um on the tour just at a club like overlooking the city so i interviewed mark Knowles uh a couple of weeks ago and number one world doubles six i mean number one world doubles i think he only got as high as 69 in singles what do you think what's the gap there so what do you think needed to happen in your career or still needs to happen in your career to try to get your singles ranking to equal what your doubles ranking once was. And it's always like, you know, like Knowles, he was very honest about mentally. He just was like a crazy man. You know what I mean? And just maybe just yeah. mentally, his mind wasn't as much of a weapon as it needed to be for him. Um, yeah. So I'm just curious as to what you think. Well, Okay, uh, I'll tell you what I think I need. So, okay, to answer that question, I think it's not, you know, totally realistic to be able to uh, think that my singles ranking can can go as high as, as doubles if I'm focused on doubles or focused on singles because the talent pool in the singles is 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 higher just because you have all these greats that they also don't play doubles and they would be amazing in doubles as well. Um, so I feel like, you know, it's arguably a little bit less i mean it's less competitive uh that's for sure um so it that in itself makes it you know you know no says you know he didn't have the fire but he didn't have right. to go up against nadal and and Feder and, and <laughs> all these top 10 guys uh on that's so much on the doubles court and then being totally dialed and really wanting to win so that's one thing <laughs> but um good point yeah the the other thing <clears throat> the other thing well for me I think what's been, you know, the last couple of years, and again, life is, I mean, you know, this is why tennis is so tough too, because, because you're out there on your own. It's an individual sport. There's nowhere to hide. If something's not going well, if you're a little bit less fit, if you're a little bit, even let's say unhappier in your personal life, if, if, if let's say anything, right. If whatever it is, uh, or if you're not training the right way or if, like that's it, the margins are so small that you're, there's 50 guys behind you that are just going to pass you in the rankings, right? So if everything's not going, like, if 90% of your, if, of everything that you're doing in your life is, is not, you know, firing well, it's going to be very tough for you to be at your, at your peak 
performance in terms of your abilities or, or potential. So for me, I think, you know, injury is one of them as well, obviously. So for me, I think, a couple, you know, the last few years, apart from 2019 and 2020, when I came back from the back injury, I actually had a really good year. And I was, I was top 30 in the, in the race, but because of the, the double, the double year COVID ranking system, I was, I was like 60 or 65. Um, so I know I still have that, you know, that, that ability in me and it was not too long ago. Um, but for me, it's really just about having, you know, like a stable team coach and a body holding up and being fit because all these guys, you know, they're, they're so incredibly fit and it's sometimes it feels like that it's a, you know, a huge mountain to, to, to kind of try to, to climb because I mean, I, I feel like, you know, uh, do everything possible to, to be as fit as possible. And then the body even starts to break down because of how much work you're putting in. And it's not, it's not easy finding the balance. And I think that's a big one um, and training the right way. And there's a lot, I mean, on, honestly, there's a lot, but long story short, I do, I do think that I, I still have, you know, um, some great years in front of me. And I think that I'm playing, I'm improving and playing better than I ever have, I think technically. Um, and then I think physically, if, if I can hold up, um, without injuries and have a full year, you know, um, then I think I can get back up there in terms of, you know, close to what my career high was at least. Cool, man. Well, look, <laughs> obviously you're a great player, favorite. <clears throat> Always been a great dude. Uh, wish you lots Thanks. of success. I want to thank you for, you know, taking time to do this the day before, or two days before the tournament starts uh, in your home country there, Montreal. I'm mad I'm not there. I was going to go to Nilo's and get a meal. It's one of my favorite restaurants. Not to pick oh, like yeah, top five so in the whole world. That's I go so to good. Nilo's would be on my top five. Yeah. Uh, but man, I want to wish you lots of success. Uh, Thanks a lot. Keep working hard, man. Keep advocating for the players. Keep doing what you're doing, bro. Thanks. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on the on the show. And um, yeah, just got to keep going with what with what you're passionate about. Right. Just kind of whatever, wherever life takes you. But but I appreciate the Yeah, I appreciate uh, bringing me on your show. All right. This has been a Tennis.com podcast with Vashik Pospisil. Thanks for listening.